And if you have a Bible, I want to encourage you to grab that Bible. And we're going to be in the Old Testament book of 1 Kings. 1 Kings chapter 17 is where we're going to be today. And last Sunday, we started a new collection of messages that we're calling Breathe Again. And we're talking about how in those moments of life when we can be exasperated and out of breath and, and discouraged or disgruntled, that God can put the breath in our lungs. He can put the wind in our sails and give us the strength to move forward. And we're learning about resurrection power. And uh, we really kicked it off last week. Because Jesus breathed again, we can too. And I'm so thankful for that. And this morning, we're going to look at the first ever resurrection story in Scripture. Would that be okay today? The first resurrection story from 1 Kings chapter 17. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a Bible in the seat back in front of you. And we want that Bible to be our gift to you if you don't own a Bible. And so feel free to take that home, write your name in it. We want you to be able to have a Bible that you can read on a daily basis. And uh, most of the verses will be on the screen as well today. But if you are ready to dive into God's Word, would you say amen? amen. 1 Kings 17, verse number 17. And it came to pass, after these things, that the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, fell sick. And his sickness was so sore that there was no breath left in him. Everybody say, no breath. And she said to Elijah, What have I to do with thee, O thou man of God? Art thou come unto me to call my sin to remembrance and to slay my son? And he said unto her, Give me thy son. And he took him out of her bosom and carried him up into a loft where he abode and laid him Upon his own bed. And he cried unto the Lord and said, O Lord my God, hast thou also brought evil upon the widow with whom I sojourn by slaying her son? And he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried unto the Lord and said, O Lord my God, I pray thee, let this child's soul come into him again. And the Lord heard the voice of Elijah. And the soul of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down out of the chamber into the house and delivered him unto his mother. And Elijah said, See, thy son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now, by this I know that thou art a man of God, and that the word of the Lord in thy mouth is truth. Today, for a few minutes, I want to speak to this subject, the advantage of adversity. The advantage of adversity. Let's have a word of prayer together. Father, thank you so much for this day you've given us. Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for this moment. God, thank you for what you did even last week. God, we know that you want to do more in our midst, and we want to see more lives impacted with the gospel. And Lord, we know that it's not about what we have to say in our words, but God, we know that there is power in your words. And Lord, I pray that today we would understand how we can breathe again, how we can find strength in a season of struggle. And Lord, I pray that today uh, we can glean exactly what it is you would have for us in your word. And we love you in Jesus' name. And everybody said, the NBA playoffs just started a couple of weeks ago. How many of you have been watching the NBA playoffs? Okay, about seven of you. Okay. And, uh, and uh, the playoffs started and the Lakers this year did not make the playoffs. 
And so that is disheartening for me as a Laker fan, but I've decided, I'm not ashamed about it, I've decided to jump on the bandwagon of the Golden State Warriors for the rest of the playoffs. And so that's who I'm, that's who I'm rooting for. And, uh, you know, it's interesting in the playoffs, a, a topic of conversation that always comes up in the NBA is who has home court advantage. How many of you have ever heard about someone talking about who has home court advantage? And uh, if you have home court advantage, you have the support of your own fans uh, that are in the building. You have the familiarity of the arena. Uh, you didn't have to travel, and so you might have more rest. There's an advantage if you have the home court. In fact, I read an interesting statistic on the Bleacher Report. Uh, according to uh, Bleacher Report, 65% of the time in the NBA playoffs, uh, historically speaking, the home team has won. And so that is a considerable advantage. You know, but the reality is in life, all of us in certain arenas are looking for an advantage. We all want some sort of competitive edge, uh, perhaps on the competition, so to speak. We all want some sort of edge or some sort of advantage to help us when it comes to our relationships or uh, when it comes to our finances. We want to have an advantage in that. How many of you would say, that would be nice to have an advantage in my bank account? Anybody think that's interesting today? And, and so in, in all these areas of life, we're looking for an advantage. And spiritually speaking, what is so fascinating is that uh, the advantage in our lives often comes... By way of adversity. And this is not something that we find uh, joy in or that we, uh, we like, so to speak, but when we're looking for an advantage in life, often it comes by way of adversity. This is what the Bible teaches over and over again. Uh, the book of James says this in James chapter 1, verse number 1, uh, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. The word temptations is interchangeable with trials, adversity. He says you can find joy uh, when you're in the midst of a season of adversity. Knowing this, how, uh, how can we have joy? Knowing this, that the trying of your faith works patience, endurance. But let patience have her perfect work that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. And so James says when an adversity comes into your life, you can actually find uh, advantages in that adversity. What are those advantages? Namely, patience, endurance, uh, that you can have uh, perfection. And that word means a maturity. It doesn't mean that you are a perfect individual. It means that you will experience growth and maturity from that. He says wanting nothing. That means you'll have contentment, uh, find contentment through that adversity. And so James is saying, if you have the right perspective, uh, you will find these advantages in the midst of adversity that you wouldn't have if you didn't go through that difficult season. The apostle Paul also said this in Romans chapter five, verse number three. He said, and not only so, but we glory in our tribulations. That's not vernacular that we use often. I'm going to glory and be proud of the trial that I went through. I'm going to glory in that suffering that I endured. Uh, but he says this, knowing, he says, how can I say that? Knowing that the tribulation works patience. There's that endurance again. Uh, there's going to be some longevity in life. Th those people that experience longevity in life and ministry are those people that learn to endure seasons of suffering. And so he says there's going to be uh, 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 patience and endurance, experience, uh, speaking of character, and hope. And, and so and adversity in life is not meant to produce in us more anxiety. Uh, adversity is meant to give us an advantage. And there is always an advantage to be found through a season of adversity. Now, we come to 1 Kings chapter 17 today. 
And we're finding this passage of great adversity. Uh, There's great pain and turmoil in the passage that we just read. And we'll unpack it in just a moment. But I thought it would be good for us to kind of catch our bearings. Anytime you open up the word of God, you want to kind of know where you are in the Bible, where you are in redemptive history. And and so we come into uh, the Old Testament, and we come to 1 Kings chapter 17. And at this time, the nation of Israel was divided. This was a wicked and evil time in the, in the life of the nation of Israel. Uh, it was the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. The southern kingdom of Judah, they were doing okay. Uh, they had some decent kings that would try to follow the Lord and try to follow God's will. Uh, but the northern kingdom of Israel was far from God's plan, uh, completely rejecting God. In fact, in the northern kingdom of Israel at this time, over a span of 200 years, there was 19 consecutive evil kings. So think about that for a moment. Uh, think about if we had 19 consecutive evil, wicked presidents, evil, wicked kings, 19 consecutive. So this was a bad time in the history of Israel. Uh, number seven on that list of 19 kings was a man named Ahab. And Ahab was the worst of the worst. Uh, Ahab was a bad king. He had a wife named Jezebel, and they completely rejected uh, the one true God. In fact, The Bible gives us a little bit of insight as to the life of King Ahab. And it says this in 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 32. And he reared up an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he had built in Samaria. And Ahab made a grove. And Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel that were before him. And so this was not a good person. Uh, This was a man that not only allowed and tolerated sexual immorality and idolatry, but actually welcomed it and promoted it. This was a man that completely rejected God, that wanted nothing to do with God. He was number seven in the line of evil kings. And yet, I, I believe it's interesting that during this time, when it was the worst of the worst, during this dark time in the nation of Israel, is when God wanted to show up and breathe new life into this situation. It was when God wanted to show up and do the miraculous even in this dark time. And I believe that there's some encouragement for us today because sometimes we can look at our world, we can look at our culture, we can look at our country and we can think, man, it's too far gone and people are crazy and the world is crazy and uh, bad things just keep on happening. Uh, But I'm thankful that last week 15 people prayed to accept Jesus Christ. I'm thankful that God is still on the move and God is still breathing new life for all those that will accept him. And so it was in the middle of this dark time, King Ahab, this wicked king of Israel, that God is going to send a man named Elijah. Now, Elijah kind of just flies under the pages of Scripture. Not a whole lot of introduction for Elijah's life. Uh, We find out about him for the first time in 1 Kings 17. All we know is his name is Elijah the Tishbite. He kind of just shows up on the scene. But but I believe that uh, even in his name, the very name Elijah, we have a little bit of an indication and insight as to his character. Elijah's name is broken up into three parts. El, meaning God. I, the personal pronoun, I. Jah, speaking for Jehovah. And so you put those together. Elijah's name means my God is Jehovah. And so right off the bat, we're introduced to the character of Elijah. Right off the bat, we know what kind of man he is. He says, you know what? My God is Jehovah. I'm worshiping the one true God. Now, this is important today because there are a lot of people whose God is their career, whose God is their relationships, whose God is money, whose God is sex. Uh, But what Elijah said is, my God is Jehovah. You don't have to wonder where I stand. You don't have to wonder who I side with. I side with the one true God, Yahweh, Jehovah. That is who I worship. 
And I believe today there ought to be some followers of Jesus that we don't have to wonder where we stand. Hey, I stand with the God of the Bible. I stand with the word of God. I'm not going to bow down and bend my knee to the constant changing, conforming culture, but I'm going to stand with the one true God. And this is Elijah. And so on one end, we have Ahab. Very bad. On the other side, we have Elijah. He comes onto the scene, and he goes up, and he boldly confronts Ahab. And he says, because you're living in sin, because you have rejected God, because you're living in wickedness, God is going to send a drought to Israel, and there's going to be no rain. Well, this was an agrarian society, and that meant that there was going to be a lot of hardship. There was going to be a lot of loss of money. And so you can imagine King Ahab and his wife Jezebel did not like that prediction. They didn't like uh, the man of God coming before them and, and predicting this. And so they get very upset. They want to kill Elijah. And so Elijah goes into hiding. He goes into witness protection, and he is hiding, and he's on the run. God sends him to a little Gentile city called Zarephath. And it was there at Zarephath that God sent a, a widow and her son to help provide shelter and food for Elijah. And in fact, things were going pretty well. They had all the food that they needed, even in the midst of this famine and drought. God was miraculously providing food for them. Things were going pretty well. And then all of a sudden, unexpectedly, they experienced a great tragedy. This widow's son that Elijah was with dies. This is the height of adversity. The most devastating and painful feelings you can imagine. Why did this happen? Things were going well, and now we've experienced this great loss. And this brings us to the heart of the message today and what we're going to talk about and how God is going to breathe new life even in the midst of this adversity. And so what I'd like to do this morning as we look back to these verses and as we unpack them together, I want to give us four principles to remember when adversity arrives. Would that be all right this morning? Four principles to remember when adversity arrives. Number one is this. Adversity tampers with our thinking. When adversity arrives, we have to remember that adversity is going to tamper with our thinking. It's going to mess with our minds. I remember several years ago when I was growing up, my, my dad took our family to a Dodgers game, and uh, we pulled into Dodger Stadium. And How many of you have seen the sign on uh, at Dodger Stadium on the hill that says, Think Blue? How many of you know what I'm talking about? It says a big sign that says, Think Blue. And uh, we pulled in, and uh, I saw my oldest sister, Danielle, and she was looking at that sign. And I could tell she was kind of just like lost in space for a moment. She was kind of spacing out. And I was like, Danielle, what are you doing? And she was like, I'm thinking blue. And she totally did not understand uh, what the sign meant. And uh, she, I'm thinking blue in this moment. That sign really kind of messed with her mind. And I want to encourage you today that when adversity arrives in your life, just know that it's going to mess with your mind. Uh, just know that you're going to think some things that you wouldn't normally think in adversity. You're going to feel some things in adversity that you wouldn't normally feel that would make you do some things that you wouldn't normally do. Adversity has a way of tampering with your thought process. And I want to see how it plays out in the text today. Uh, notice verse number 17. Everybody with me this morning? Verse 17, and it came to pass after these things, after what things? After God miraculously provided food and provision for Elijah and the widow and her son. After those things, that the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, fell sick. And his sickness was so sore that there was no breath left in him. Now, this is the height of adversity. This woman already lost her husband. And now she's not only losing just her son, it was her only son. And out of nowhere, 
her son passes away. Now, certain trials in life are expected, certain are unexpected. She knew that the drought was coming, but she didn't know death was coming. She could expect the drought, okay, I know there's going to be some adversity uh, on our way, I can prepare for that, but this was something that you couldn't prepare for. You know, there's some uh, moments of adversity that we can see coming, right, and uh, maybe it's a financial season in your life that you know, okay, things are going to be tight for this season, or uh, we're going to go through a difficult time period, but then there are certain adversities and difficulties in life that we just don't see coming, and, and, and the moment of that, this adversity would have seemed strange, you know, Peter said, uh, don't be surprised at this fiery trial, which is to try you. How many of you remember that verse? He says, don't be surprised when, when struggles come into your life. And I think often we're not surprised that adversity comes into our life. I think often we're surprised at the timing of adversity in our lives. Why now? Does not this seem like an odd time for there to be a great adversity in their lives? I mean, God was just providing for them miraculously. They had experienced miraculous provision. Not only that, the reason they experienced miraculous provision was because they were walking by faith. They were trusting God and his word. And this could have seemed like an unfair moment. God, we have been walking by faith. We've been following your man. We've been doing what you want us to do. You've been providing for us this whole time so that we could survive in the midst of this drought and famine. Why would you take my son now? This didn't make any sense. This was a burden that she was carrying. And the timing of the adversity didn't make sense. The Bible says this in Psalm 34 verse 19. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. That's not always a fun verse to preach. Let me give you some encouragement this morning if you're trying to live a, a godly life and you want to live right. Many are going to be your afflictions. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but here's the good news. But the Lord delivereth him out of them all. Aren't you thankful for that today? And so this burden was unexpected. It came out of nowhere. And because of this adversity, Watch, we get a little a peek and an insight to her thinking. Okay, I want you to see it. Notice verse number 18. Notice what it says, verse 18. And she said unto Elijah, What have I to do with thee, O thou man of God? Art thou come unto me to call my sin to remembrance and to slay my son? All of a sudden, she gets mad at Elijah and starts pointing her finger at Elijah. This is your fault. I didn't ask you to come into my life. I didn't ask you to come to this Gentile region. Hey, you're not even supposed to be here. I didn't welcome this. I didn't invite you in. Why would you come into my life only so that my son would be killed? Meanwhile, she forgot that Elijah was providing miraculously through the power of God food and provision for the last three years. Often when we are hurting, often when we are fatigued, we are quick to forget the faithfulness of God. We're in adversity, when we're hurting, when we're broken, the first thing that we, we do is we forget how good God has been. And here we see her thinking has been tampered with. All of a sudden, she's saying, hey, this is your fault. Why would you do this? She's not thinking rationally because this pain clouded her judgment. And I just want to encourage you today, when you are going through adversity, when you're carrying a trial, when you are struggling, that is not the time to make a major life decision. Because your thinking is impaired. The Bible talks over and over and over again about guarding our thoughts, guarding our mind. Here she is. She's hurting. She's broken. And now she's lashing out on Elijah. This is your fault. Philip Keller said this, when suffering or sorrow suddenly engulfs us like a flood, we often quickly forget the goodness of our friends, our family, even our God. In self-pity and hurt, we lash out against whoever is near at hand. We heap abuse upon husband or wife, parent or child, friend or neighbor. In the tirade, innocent bystanders bear the brunt of our abuse. And so here this hurting widow 
was pointing her finger at Elijah, saying, why would you do this? She says, are you trying to call my sin into remembrance? Uh, by the way, this is a wrong theology that many people think that, uh, that, that suffering is always the result of sin. Now, sometimes suffering is the result of sin, okay? Sometimes there uh, is a bad decision that we make, a sinful decision, and we know there's going to be some consequences from that decision, right? If you go out today and, and get some credit cards and max out all of your credit cards, and then you can't pay the payment, and then some banks are coming after you, and you're going through a season of adversity, that is because you made some bad decisions, right? Sometimes sin will bring a consequence in that manner. But not all suffering is directly linked to sin. This is something that Jesus responded to in John chapter 9 with the healing of the blind man. The disciples were walking by one day, and they saw this blind man who was suffering. And what was their question? Who sinned? This man or his parents? And so they immediately jumped to this conclusion that this blind man was suffering either because he sinned or because his parents sinned. That was the only option. And so Jesus, which one is it? And I love Jesus' response. He says this. And Jesus passed by and he saw a man which was blind from his birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither hath this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest or shown or displayed in him. And so the trial was not the result of sin. The trial had a purpose, and that purpose was to glorify and magnify God. Can I encourage somebody today that God has a purpose in your situation, and you might be hurting, and you might be suffering, but God wants to show, he wants to manifest his glory even in that season of suffering. That God always has a purpose for our pain. And here is the widow at Zarephath looking at Elijah saying, did this happen because of my sin? And you're just trying to expose it and bring out and bring up my sin? And her thinking was tampered with. She forgot about the provision. She forgot about the faithfulness of God. The Bible says this in 1 Peter 1 verse 13. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Now remember, whenever the Bible says to gird up the loins, that was a specific picture uh, when you were in the first century wearing a tunic and you wanted to run and high step it you had to grab that tunic and you had to wrap it up so that you could move your legs and have some mobility that's what it meant to gird up the loins it was about preparation you need to get ready to run you need to prepare yourself and so when the bible says to gird up the loins of your mind what is peter saying prepare your mind I believe it would be so wonderful today if we left this room, we left this online service with having this mindset, you know, I need to guard my heart. I need to guard my mind when I'm in adversity because when that time comes, I know that I'm probably going to think some irrational thoughts. I'm going to guard my mind. I'm going to prepare for those moments. Why? Adversity always tampers with our thinking. Here's the second thought today. You ready for number two? Adversity is an opportunity to show empathy. Adversity is an opportunity to show empathy. Now, how is Elijah going to respond to these hurtful comments? Is he going to say, excuse me? Is he going to say, don't you remember how I've been good to you? Uh, what is Elijah going to say? Let, let's notice what he does. First of all, Elijah was calm. He was calm. Notice it in verse 19. And he said unto her, give me thy son. And he took him out of her bosom and carried him up into a loft where he abode and laid him upon his own bed. I love that Elijah doesn't snap back here. So are you kidding me? He doesn't dismiss her. He doesn't ignore her. I think it's interesting that he doesn't even respond to the accusations. Sometimes when we're hurting or when someone else is hurting in our lives, we think that we have to have the right answer in that moment. 
Well, I need to just, I need to articulate this in a beautiful way, and I need to pontificate uh, all of my reasoning behind why I did what I did, or I need to, I need to explain to you about all of these things, why this trial happened to you. Uh, sometimes it's not about having the right words to say. Sometimes it's just about your presence being with someone that is hurting. Sometimes it's just you being there. Elijah didn't respond to the accusations. He was calm, and uh, he says, give me your son, and he was, he was being uh, quick to, uh, he was being slow to speak in this moment. But then not only, was he, he, not only was he calm, he was also compassionate. I think it's interesting that it says this in verse number 19. And he carried him up into a loft where he abode, so the place where he was staying, and laid him upon his own bed. What a great act of compassion here by Elijah. He doesn't say much. He stays calm. But he literally places her burden in his arms. He's literally carrying the burden for her. Preston, come up here for a second. I'm going to ask for uh, Preston's help. Let's give it up for Preston this morning. Preston is a teenager in our church, RHYC. Let's give it up for RHYC. And Preston has, Preston has a great attitude, and he serves around the church often, and uh, he does a great job. And there's something that I want to demonstrate this morning. It's called the fireman's lift or the fireman's carry. How many of you know what I'm talking about, the fireman's carry? And I want to demonstrate this with, with Preston this morning. This is a very important skill that we all need to learn. Dana, if you can come up here and help me too for a second. The fireman's carry is uh, a process and a way that you can carry someone. And uh, if they're hurting, if they're uh, incapacitated and you want to bring them to safety, uh, you need to know how to do this. And so, Dana, if you can hold the mic for a second. So this is the fireman's carry, right? And this is a way that you can carry someone for a lengthy period of time uh, without hopefully dropping them, right? And uh, you don't want to just cradle them in your arms. You want to be able to uh, carry them for a lengthy period of time. So I'm just going to see how long we can last here for a minute and, uh, and carry and press them like this. You know, but the truth is the Bible says in Galatians chapter 6 that we are to bear one another's burdens, right? And so fulfill the law of Christ. And uh, that's exactly what we want to do. Let's give it up for Preston this morning. Good job, Preston. You know, sometimes when it comes to our faith, we can have a consumer mindset. What's in it for me? Bless me. Are you worried about me? Are you praying for me? Are you helping me? But I wonder, do you have a consumer mindset or do you have a carrying mindset? Whose burden can I carry? When I walk into church, is my mindset, bless me. Let's see if you can do it. Let's see if that song's going to give me goosebumps. It's all about me, what I want, what I'm going through. Or do we walk into church thinking, man, I wonder who's hurting today. I wonder who I can help carry their burdens. What Elijah does is he instinctively stays calm. He picks him up and he carries and he comforts, and he's demonstrating compassion. The Bible says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse number 3. Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and the God of all comfort. By the way, uh, just pause and think about that for a second. Aren't you thankful that the God that we worship is the God of all comfort? Not just a little bit, uh, not just a short supply, but he's the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our tribulation that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. Did you see the process? 
That God is so loving, he's so kind, and God is quick to show us comfort when we're hurting. But it's not so that we can just be healed and that we can just be good to go. God comforts us so that we might in turn comfort others. That we might be the hands and feet of Jesus and go out into our community and show love and show compassion and carry one another's burdens. That's what the church is for. We are to evangelize the lost. Yes, we're so thankful when people come in and accept Christ. But one of the purposes of the church is to edify one another, to build each other up. And one of the greatest ways that we do that is we carry each other's burdens. By the way, it's hard to carry someone's burden if you don't know what they're going through. It's hard to know what someone's going through if you don't know them. It's hard to to get to know someone if we walk in isolation, what I'm trying to say is it's so important for us to be in the house of God, to be in a small group community. It's not just, I've heard people say to me so many times, you know, that small group wasn't for me. It just didn't bless me. It didn't hit me in the right spot. And so I don't know, that small group just wasn't uh, quite for me. Have you ever thought about maybe you should go to a small group to encourage someone else? That, that your presence can actually help someone else in that moment? And so what Elijah does is he shows empathy. He stays calm. He shows compassion, and he comforts her. Now, this leads us to our third thought. Number three is this. So adversity, it's an opportunity to show empathy. But number three, adversity must be met with prayer. Adversity must be met with prayer. Why? Because prayer is not our last ditch effort. It's not our last, it's not our last attempt. It is our highest appeal, right? And so what Elijah does here is he is going to go straight to the Lord in prayer. Let's notice in verse number 20. And he cried unto the Lord and said, O Lord my God, why hast thou also brought evil upon the widow with whom I sojourned by slaying her son? And he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried unto the Lord and said, O Lord my God, I pray thee, let this child's soul come into him again. Now, Elijah prays a powerful prayer, and I want to break it up into four components quickly. Uh, We'll go through these quickly, but you can jot jot them down because I believe that if you're struggling in your prayer life today, Uh, It's so important when it comes to prayer to have a template, to have an example that you can look to. That's why Jesus gave us the Lord's Prayer, that we would have an example and a template to uh, to follow. We can know how to pray. Well, Elijah gives us this great example of prayer. And I want to give you a couple things uh, to jot down if you're interested when it comes to prayer. Would that be okay? First of all, this prayer was private. It was private. In verse number 19, it says that he went up into his loft where he abode. So he went to that place and he laid him upon his own bed. He went to a a private place. Now, I believe that this was not Elijah's first time to pray in this place. I believe that Elijah had spent hours praying in this place. I believe that Elijah had a habit and a custom of praying in this particular place. I wonder when it comes to your prayer life, do you have a place? Do you have a spot? And if you can't think of what I would encourage you, maybe find a spot. Think of a place where you can boldly approach the throne of grace. Now, I'm thankful that we can pray anywhere. I'm thankful you can pray right now. You can pray in the car. You can pray wherever you like. But I believe it's helpful if you're looking for a consistency uh, to find a place. And Elijah was praying in private. Now, if you know Elijah's story, he would go on and pray some pretty awesome prayers in public. But I believe first it started with private discipline. He was praying in in private. He went up into his room. Ian Bounds said this, public prayers are of little worth unless they're founded on or followed up by private praying. And so this was a private prayer, but also it was fervent. Did you notice in verse 20 and 21, it says two times that he cried unto the Lord. He cried. This wasn't just bless his food, amen. This wasn't help me have a good day today, amen. This was a fervent prayer 
crying out to the Lord, passionate plea before God Almighty, will you intervene in this situation? It was a fervent prayer. You know that verse in James where he says the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much? How many of you know what I'm talking about? Uh, The effectual fervent prayer. Uh, Do you know who his example was? Elijah. Notice it, James 5, 16 and 17. Confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that ye may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Elias or Elijah uh, was a man subject to like passions as we are. And he prayed earnestly that it might not rain. And it rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months. I I love this, that Elijah was the example of fervent, passionate prayers. Uh, Elijah was a passionate prayer. And and you know, it's interesting that the Bible says that he was a man subject to like passions as we are. He was just a normal dude. Uh, Elijah was just like us. Uh, Elijah was someone that we could uh, resonate with, that we could relate to. And yet he was praying these kind of bold, fervent prayers. But not only was his uh, prayer uh, fervent and private, uh, it was also uh, uh, authentic. Notice what it says here in verse number 20. This was an authentic prayer. In verse number 20, he says, And he cried unto the Lord and said, O Lord my God, hast thou also brought evil upon the widow with whom I sojourned by slaying her son? This was Elijah showing authenticity. He was saying, God, I don't know why this happened. God, why would you do this in this moment? You know, in your prayers... You don't have to impress God. Sometimes we try so hard to say the right words and to sound really great and to sound really profound. But hey, if you want to pray uh, with power, pray with some authenticity. And, and Elijah here was praying with authenticity. And the Bible says this in Psalm 62, verse number 8, Trust in him at all times, ye people. Pour out your heart before him. Tell God the questions that you have. Uh, give him your concerns. Give him your doubts. God is a refuge for us, Selah. And, and so he was praying fervently and with authenticity. He was also praying. Here's the fourth one. He was praying with boldness. In verse number 21, notice what he says. And he stretched himself upon the child three times. Now, this was a, an ancient custom, a cultural oddity. Um, we're not exactly sure the reasoning why he did this. Later on, his, the next in line, Elisha, uh, he did this same thing where he stretched himself over. Some commentators say it was to keep the boy warm. Um, but he stretched himself upon the child three times, and he cried unto the Lord and said, O Lord my God, I pray thee, let this child's soul come into him again. Now, that was a prayer of precedence, meaning this is the first resurrection story in all of Scripture. And so Elijah couldn't say, Uh, Lord, just like you raised Lazarus, will you raise this boy? This means that Elijah was praying with great faith. He had never seen this done before. He was praying for God to do the impossible. I wonder in your prayer life today, are you praying prayers that are very safe? Or are you asking God to do immeasurably more? We worship a big God. We worship a great God, but so often we confine him to the box of our limited thinking. And here what Elijah is doing, he's praying a bold uh, prayer, asking God to do what he has never seen before. And this leads us to our fourth and final thought this morning. Number four is this. Adversity can be used of God to bring clarity. Adversity can be used of God to bring clarity. You have one more point in you today? Now, God is going to use this trial to do two things specifically this adversity. First, to bring new life. Notice what it says in verse 22. And the Lord heard the voice of Elijah. I'm thankful that God hears our prayers. 
he heard the voice of Elijah. And the soul of the child came into him again, and he revived. God brought him back to life. He breathed again. That is something that only God can do. He prayed a bold, impossible prayer, and God raised this boy to new life. And I want you to know today that God is doing the same today. That God is breathing new life. That he is offering not just temporary life where we will die and die again. No, he is offering eternal life today. The Bible says this in John chapter 5, in verse number 24. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that hath sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed, watch this, but is passed from death unto life. See, life before Christ, we weren't just bad. We weren't just in bad shape. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. Ephesians says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God, who is rich in mercy, who is rich in mercy and love, he has made us alive, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. And today, if you've never prayed and accepted Jesus Christ, God can breathe into your life. You can breathe again. You can have a relationship with God. You can be passed from death unto life. This is the good news of the gospel. And so God breathed new life into this situation. But not only did God bring new life in this situation, but also this adversity, and here's what I want us to see as we close. This adversity brought validation. It brought certainty. It brought clarity. Notice it, verse 23. Elijah took the child and brought him down out of the chamber into the house and delivered him unto his mother. And Elijah said, see, thy son liveth. What a moment that would have been. And the woman said to Elijah, and I love this, now by this, I know. Everybody say, I know. I know that thou art a man of God and that the word of the Lord in thy mouth is truth. She said, I thought I knew before, but now after seeing this, now I know. Now there's some clarity. I'm thankful that the Bible says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Uh, before there is clarity, there must be purity. And what we see with this woman is she says, now I know because I went through this adversity, because I went through this difficult season, I didn't understand then. I was confused. I was broken. I was angry then. But now I know how good God is. Now I know how powerful God is. I'm thankful that in this church that we've been uh, privileged to serve in for the last five years, that God has brought the miraculous over and over again, getting into this building. And I can take a step back when I'm hurting, when I'm confused, and say, you know what? I know that God is still in control. I know that he is all powerful. I know that he can breathe new life into this dormant situation. I know that God can do good things in my desert season. I've seen him do it before. And now I know, adversity in life has a way of bringing clarity. The Bible says that now we look through a glass darkly. It's hard to ascertain. It's hard to always make sense of every hurt and every struggle. But I'm thankful that the clarity and the confirmation that we are longing for is provided in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Psalm 119 verse 71 says this, it is good for me. Everybody say good for me. It's good for me that I've been afflicted, that I might learn thy statutes. It's good for me to hurt. It's good for me to be broken at times because God is gonna teach me something in the valley that I can't learn in the mountain. C.S. Lewis put it this way, God whispers to us in our pleasures, he speaks in our conscience, but he shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. 
You know, in the New Testament, there's a famous chapter in the book of Hebrews. It's Hebrews chapter 11, and a lot of times Christians will call this chapter the Hall of Faith. How many of you know what I'm talking about today? The Hall of Faith. And there's many famous, you could say, Bible characters from the Old Testament that are mentioned in the Hall of Faith, talking about great things that they had done. Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses. But it's interesting that Elijah is not mentioned in the Hall of Faith. You would think Elijah, this larger-than-life character, praying down fire from heaven and bringing, doing all these wonderful things, and Elijah is not mentioned, someone that lived by great faith. But if you read in Hebrews a little bit more in depth and you pay attention, I believe if you look closely, you can see Elijah. Because it says this in Hebrews 11, verse 35. Women received their dead, raised to life again. Elijah is not mentioned by name, but he's mentioned in the shadows. And what I've learned is that God sometimes does his best work, not in the spotlight, but in the shadows. And today, maybe you're hurting, maybe you're, you feel like you're walking through the valley of the shadow of death. Nobody knows what you're going through. Nobody knows that you're exasperated. It's hard for you to breathe. It's hard for you to think about the next season of life and you're struggling, you're hurting and you're broken and you feel as though you're in the shadows. I want you to know today, that our God is still breathing new life, that he is still filling us with his spirit, that he's still on the throne, that he is still all powerful and he can still pass uh, us from death and into life. There's always an advantage in adversity if we'll trust God through it. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes this morning.